All right. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you. I uh, uh, have been serving on the, the temporary session of this church, and it's been really great to hear Chris sharing stories of how God's been at work at your church. And I've I've been excited to kind of make the trek across the bridge. Am I too loud? I'll just adjust it. Yeah. I feel like the voice of God. <laughs> uh, um, but I've been wanting to make the trek across the bridge and, uh, and kind of see it for myself. So it's really, really great to be here. I know that you guys have had kind of a series of speakers. You're probably getting a little weary of, you know, different, different faces and names up here. But um, just a little, little more intro on kind of who I am that might be helpful for you this morning. So I uh, actually, fun fact on Brent Webster, my wife went to Chris's church in Atlanta. So he was her pastor. And I still remember the first time that I met Chris, I thought, man, this guy, hearing him preach, I remember thinking, this dude is really intense, <laughs> number one. And number two, he really believes that God loves him. And, uh, and that's one of the things that I really love and value about, about Chris. Um, I uh, actually am originally from South Carolina, which is why some of you think I talk funny. Actually, you all talk funny, and I talk normal, whatever normal is. Uh, but I moved to the city in 2004. I was on staff at another church here in the city for about three years. And then in 2006, moved across the bridge to start a campus ministry at Berkeley, which is what I've been doing for the last 11 years. So any any uh, cow bears in the room this morning? Oh, gosh. I, I knew it. I could see it. We connected as soon as I looked at you a minute ago. Did you, you didn't feel that, but I felt it. But, uh, but I've loved doing it. I've loved getting to, to pastor students. And we just wrapped up our 11 years of campus ministry in May. And now we're launching out to start a new church in Oakland. And uh, if you know anybody in Oakland, like the caveat is if they have a pulse, if they have a pulse, <laughs> I would love to meet them. If you know of anybody who might be looking for, for a new church, I'd love to connect with them. Um, okay, enough about me. Our text this morning uh, comes from John chapter five. And uh, let me invite you to follow along as I read. And uh, uh, you'll see the... the uh, line for you to recite back there at the top. So how does, how does Christ tell us we should listen to his word? If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonies, colonies. <coughs> In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you this morning that you are good. That feels like such a small word to attribute to you, but it is, but it is true. And we come to you this morning um, from all sorts of different places and backgrounds. Some of us uh, in this room are um, we're unconvinced of the things that we've been singing and praying and reading. Um, others of us in this room, we, we come with a sense of nearness to you, a sense of your presence in our life, a sense of you orchestrating um, all the, the details of our life for our own good and for your glory. Um, God, we come this morning, some of us depressed, uh, some of us, uh, some of us just exhausted with life and work and family. Some of us come this morning with tears and suffering. Um, God, wherever we, wherever we come from, we thank you that you know us, you know our stories individually and uniquely, that none of us are here by accident this morning. And so I pray that you would break through into our lives this morning through the white noise of everything else that's going on and you would speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Uh, one of the things that I, I loved about getting to pastor college students, is, especially Berkeley students, is they are not afraid to ask questions. They actually love to ask questions and they love to ask the hard questions, particularly the hard questions about faith and God and belief. So questions like, how could Christianity ever claim to be the only way to know God? How could Jesus ever claim to be the only way? Uh, how could a good God allow suffering? How do we know that we could actually trust the Bible? Uh, and maybe, you, maybe you're asking these same questions this morning because all of us have questions. Let me let, let you in on a little secret here. Even pastors have questions, okay? We are not people who have it all figured out. Even pastors wrestle with these things. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's constantly encouraging us to take our questions to God. God is not afraid of our questions. He's not frustrated with our questions. He actually says, bring your questions to me. But here's what I want you to consider this morning is that questions are actually a two-way street. You see, it's not just that we have questions about God and for God, but God actually has some questions for us. So when you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly asking questions. Questions like, who do you say I am? Why are you so afraid? Why do you doubt? He's constantly asking questions. And in John 5, what we find this morning, I think is it's the strangest question that Jesus asks. Jesus looks at a man, he stares him in the eyes, a man who has been helplessly disabled for 38 years, and this is what he says to him. Do you want to be healed? 
I mean, what a, what a strange question. What an unnecessary question. I mean, you could even say, what a rude question. You know, isn't the answer obvious? And what we're going to do this morning, kind of in our next few moments, is I want us to sit in that question. Do you want to be healed? Because Jesus is not just asking it of this man. He's actually asking it of you and me. Do you want to be healed? And in many ways, it is the defining question of our lives. Do you want to be healed? And I would contend that while the answer seems so obvious, the reason that Jesus asked it is because it's not. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at three truths that must sink in in order for you to be healed. Three truths that must sink in. And the first one is this. We are not well. We are not well. You are not well. Nice to meet you. I am not well. (laughs) We are not well. When Jesus asks the question, do you want to be healed? It's a not so subtle suggestion that you need to be. It's a not-so-subtle suggestion that something has gone terribly wrong with humanity, that we are sick. And if you have trouble believing this, then I want to invite you to my house. Because in my house, we have these things called children. Okay? And uh, I have two little girls, five-year-old and three-year-old, and also a teenage boy. But my two daughters, uh, Rosie and Lucy. Lucy's five, Rosie's three. And and a couple months ago, they got into a, um, a disagreement. Okay? And, uh, and here's what was going on, was Rosie was playing with Lucy's toy, and Lucy did not want Rosie playing with her toy. And so I had to explain to Rosie, Rosie, you have, to, you have to give the toy back to Lucy, and then ask her if you can have a turn. And, you know, Rosie is like on the ground, screaming, crying, because if you're three, this is like the end of the world, right? Like to have to give the toy back and ask for a turn. So, but Rosie... She kind of rallies, right? And she, she gets up and she walks over to Lucy and like through kind of like sniffling tears, she hands her the toy back and she says, Lucy, can I have a turn when you're done? And I'm like, this is one of those moments where you're like, I am killing it as a parent right now. Like is somebody videoing this? We need to like post this on YouTube. This is, this is fantastic. This is amazing. And Lucy, the five-year-old, takes the toy and then she leans in real close to Rosie, just gets right up in her ear. And it was so, you know, you thought this is going to be great. And she whispers right in her ear. She says, you can never have a turn. Like, what is wrong with us? What is, what is wrong with us? Like, I, listen, here's the deal. No one trained them or educated them in the skill of selfishness. Like, it is just their from the start, ingrained in their hearts. And you know what? It's in our hearts too. We're just taller. (laughs) We're just a little more sophisticated in the ways that we disguise it. And, uh, you know, look, here's the deal. Even Even the most secular people in society acknowledge this truth, that we are not well. So let me give you an example. George Saunders is a famous American writer Several uh, years ago, he gave a commencement address at Syracuse University in which he had some brutally honest things to say about the human condition. And uh, the article, uh, it, was, it, was, it was his speech was actually featured on NPR. It was, uh, it was printed in the New York Times, and for over a week, it was the most emailed article in the country. And, and his, 
His speech revolved around one question. One question he was asking and seeking to answer, and the question was this, what is wrong with humanity? Not a Christian, what is wrong with humanity? And this is what he said. He said, I think each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions. These are, number one, we think that we're central to the universe. That our personal story is the main and most interesting story. Number two, we think we're separate from the universe. There's us and then out there all that other junk like dogs and swing sets and the state of Nebraska. Sorry if you're from (laughs) Nebraska. And low-hanging clouds and you know other people. And number three, we think we're permanent. That death is real, okay, sure, for you, but not for me. And then he goes on to say, now we don't really believe these things. We don't really believe these three things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally and we live by them and they cause us Hear this, to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. There's a confusion in each of us, a sickness. It's called selfishness. Now, what is Saunders saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying the exact same thing that Jesus is saying in John 5. That we are not, well, something is wrong. You cannot escape the infirmity of the human condition. We are sick. Look at this man in John 5. Like he is, he is sick. He's physically sick. He's been unable to walk for 38 years. He's psychologically sick. He is a poor beggar. You know what that means? He's a nobody. Just like people out on these sidewalks that I walked by this morning, people walked by him all day long and didn't notice him. Completely disregarded by society. Invisible. He's relationally sick. Look at what he says to Jesus in verse 7. He says, Jesus, I have no one. You know what that means in the Greek? It means no one. I have no one. All of my friends and even his own family have abandoned him. All of his relationships have imploded and are fractured. This man is alone. And most significantly, he's spiritually sick. You see, his main problem is not his legs or his circumstances, but his heart. Look at what Jesus says to him in verse 14. He says, see, you are well again. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is not saying, please hear this. Jesus is not saying that there is a one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering. Jesus is not saying, now if you sin, you know know how God is. (laughs) You know how God operates with people. He is just waiting to punish you. No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. You know what Jesus is doing? He is warning this man against the danger of becoming content with his new physical healing but becoming oblivious to his deeper sickness, to the deeper sickness of his own heart, which is the cancer of sin and life apart from God. See, here's the point. This man is sick, and he knows he is sick. He knows his condition. He knows his need for healing. And the question for you this morning is, do you know yours? Do you have the courage and the honesty to see yourself in this man? See, that's 
I'm just going to kind of take a stab at this this morning. I think for just looking around, that's probably hard for many of us in this room because we are highly educated and highly successful and generally well put together. You see, what happens is that can actually blind you to the reality that you are not well. And so Jesus asked you this morning, do you want to be healed? Because in order to be healed, you have to know that you need to be. This is the first step. We are not well. That's the first truth that has to sink in. What's the second one? We seek healing in all the wrong places. Seek healing in all the wrong places. So I want you to notice where this man is when Jesus finds him. He's actually by, he's by this pool outside the temple in Jerusalem. And there alongside him is a multitude of the blind and the paralyzed and the desperately ill. And the question is, you know, why are all of these people gathered around this pool? And actually, this is, this is really interesting because if you look at your bulletin this morning, one of the things that you'll notice is that the text goes from verse 3 to verse 5. It actually skips verse 4. Verse 4 is not in the text. Go home and read your Bible today. You'll find the same thing. Verse 4 is not in the text. And the the question is, why why is verse 4 not in the text? Well, scholars agree that verse 4 was not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. That's why it's not printed here for you. But scholars also agree that verse 4 is immensely helpful for understanding the cultural background for why these people are gathered around this pool. So let me read it for you. You ready for this? Here's verse 4. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come and stir up the come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. See, they believed that this pool could make them well. And so many, just like this man in our story, came to this pool day after day, some of them for decades, hoping and wanting and wishing to be healed, only to have their hopes dashed time and time again. You see, we hear that as modern people, and we think, how silly. I mean, how sad, how futile to believe That dipping your body into a public cesspool could actually be the answer to all of your problems. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness that we modern people are not so primitive in our thinking. Thank goodness that we are not so silly to believe that something so ineffective could actually heal us. No, no, no. And yet, some of us believe that if we can just climb high enough on the vocational ladder, that the disease of our insecurity will finally dissipate. We'll finally have this sense of meaning and status and significance that we're kind of craving. Now, we, we believe that a, that a lower number on the waistband of our pants can actually quiet the hurricane of our self-loathing. We believe that finding Mr. or Mrs. Right will alleviate the ache of loneliness in our hearts. We believe, um, here's one for you. This is a big one in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. 
We believe if we could just own a house or like buy an apartment, you know, if we could just if we could just possess this piece of real estate, just give me 800 square feet. Doesn't even have, you know, it doesn't need to be anything expansive. That if we could just own something, right, then then uh, we would finally be cured of our lack of contentment. See, we we look to all sorts of other things to heal us. By the way, this is this is why we run to our addictions because we think that it's going to be this magical salve to our pain. Like you get the point. We we have our pools. We're just like we're just like these people in John five. We have our pools, and they are just as sad. And they're just as futile. Think about this. You can even use religion and morality as a pool. Right? So when you get to this passage, look at this in verse 16. After the miracle, these religious Jews, they're upset because this man picking up his bed, picking up his mat, was a violation of the Sabbath. And you see underneath that is this, this heart posture that says, rules, rules, rules. We are the good people. We have the right political views. We have the right social views. We have the right moral views. We do the right things. We make the right decisions. We're not like those people. And that's what makes us whole. You can use all sorts of things that you look to to make you well. But the point is we seek healing in all the wrong places. We run to the same pools day after day. Some of us for decades. Hoping and wanting and wishing to be healed only to have our hopes dashed time and time again. And the million dollar question is, why? Why are we so content with our failed strategies? Do you remember a couple years ago, the new uh, workout craze was insanity? Anybody, anybody doing insanity with Sean T? This guy would just like yell at you through the TV screen. And we're like paying for it. I'm still trying to figure out how this works. But, you know, Shanti, the, the name of the, the workout deal was Insanity. And this is what he would say. He said, and he named it Insanity because uh, most of us, we do the same thing over and over again, but we expect different results. And you're like, wow, that's really profound. I thought, like, Shanti, so profound. And then I realized, oh, no, actually, Einstein said that. But, you know, Shanti. Anyways. Okay, so doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Why do we run to the same pools over and over and over again when we know they don't work? We have all the empirical data that we could need. Why are we so content with our failed strategies? Well, I want to take a stab at that this morning. And I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think maybe the biggest one is this. is because real healing is not a painless process. Let me say that again. Real healing is not a painless process. Process. So I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia right now with my daughter. And one of my favorite scenes in Narnia comes from the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace is this young boy who's actually been turned into a dragon because of his stubborn and selfish behavior. And Eustace, all he wants is to become a boy again. All he wants is to become a boy. And so he tries doing everything that he can. I mean, he's like ripping off the scales, trying to make himself into a boy again. But all of his efforts to heal himself are not working until finally Aslan looks at him and he says, Eustace, you will have to let me 
heal you. And then Eustace recounts the experience this way. He says, I was so afraid of his claws, but I was desperate. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But the cure had begun. Let me tell you, that is a picture of the Christian life. It is a picture of how God often works in our lives. Real healing is not a painless process. It's often like a broken bone that has to be reset in order to be made well. See, the the cure has its implications. That's true for this man in John 5. For an Eastern beggar to be made well meant that he could actually lose a good living. It had implications for him. And yet it has implications <coughs> for us as well. There will be moments, there will be seasons in your life, and you may be in one of them right now, where God is withholding things from you. Things that you desire, good things, good things that you long for, and yet God is withholding them from you. And you will be tempted to think that it's because God is against you. But it's the exact opposite. It's not because God is against you. It's because he is so for you that he is weaning you off of your faults and futile and impotent remedies. And like a lion clawing into your heart, the cut will be deep. See, but it's the cut of a wise and gracious and loving surgeon who who cuts you not to hurt you, but to heal you, to make you well. We are not well. We seek healing in all the wrong places. But here's the last one. The last truth that must sink in is that real healing is found in Jesus. Real healing is found in Jesus. This man, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have no one to help me into this pool. If you, if, Jesus, if you could just help me get into this pool, that's what I need. I just, if you could just help me get into that pool, then I will be made well. And what does Jesus do? You know what Jesus does? He shows this man that he does not need someone to help him into the pool, but he needs someone to replace the pool. Someone to make the pool obsolete. And that is what Jesus came to do for this man and for you. Every, everything, this is a radical claim. Everything you need to be made well is found in Jesus. You will be tempted to look to all sorts of other strategies in your life. But the radical claim of Christianity is everything that you need to be made well is found right here in this man who came into this world 2,000 years ago. That he is the great physician. That's the claim of this passage. It's the claim of the entire Bible. And it's the claim that has been changing the lives of countless people throughout history. That real healing is found in Jesus. Now, why is real healing found in Jesus? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, real healing is found in Jesus because he knows our sickness. Jesus knows our sickness. See, one of the things that I love about this story is that this man... 
He did not know Jesus. Jesus shows up right before the healing and he doesn't know Jesus. And then guess what? After the healing, he still doesn't know Jesus. The the religious leaders are like, who did this? And he's like, I don't know. But Jesus knew him. What does it say in verse 6? It says that Jesus saw this man and he knew that he had been there a long time. There was not a day of his 38 years of longing to be made well that Jesus did not know. Jesus knew this man and he knows you. He knows your affliction. He knows your heartaches. He knows your pain. He knows all of the ways that other people have wounded you. And he knows all of the ways that you have wounded others. He knows all of your sickness, all of your physical sickness, all of your psychological sickness, all of your relational sickness, all of your spiritual sickness. He knows it all, but it's number two. He doesn't just know our sickness. Jesus moves towards us in our sickness. So often in the Christian life, and I don't think this is just me, but often in the Christian life, what we experience is this severe disconnect between what we know and what we feel. So I know in my head that God loves me, but it doesn't always feel that way, especially in my worst moments. So we're deeply suspicious of God's love. But what we see in this passage, what we see in this story, is that the love of Jesus is so great, and it is so constant, and it is so unconditional that it always meets us where we are not where we think we should be. Who is at this pool? You know who's at this pool? Broken people. This pool, it's not the place where you find people who are well put together, who've made all the right decisions in life, you know, who practice all the spiritual disciplines every day, who are just like hitting home runs all the time. No, this place is where you find broken, needy, messy, and messed up people. And that is exactly why you find Jesus at this pool. Because Jesus came for broken, needy, messy, and messed up people. Jesus says it this way. It's not, I'm not come for the healthy, but for the sick. I've not come for the righteous, but I've come for sinners. See, Jesus moves towards us in our sickness. He knows our sickness. He moves towards us in our sickness. But most significantly, he takes our sickness upon himself. Right? We are prone, like this man in John 5, to look up to God and say, You know, God, you don't get what it's like to be me. You don't get my affliction. You don't get my suffering. You might know about it. You might see it. You might be aware of it. But you don't understand it because you haven't experienced it. There's a story told, true story, of a Christian missionary in the 19th century who actually went to live amongst and minister amongst a colony of lepers on an island. So this guy shows up and literally for 15 years... He's trying to minister to these hurting people. And, uh, and, and for 15 years, they want nothing to do with him. And they want nothing to do with the God that he is proclaiming. And it gets to the point where he is so discouraged because nothing is happening. He's so discouraged that he actually decides, 
I'm out. I'm done. So he, gets, he goes to get on the boat to go home. And as he's getting on the boat, he looks down at his hand. And what does he see? He sees a leper's spot. He's contracted the disease. And he knows he has two options at this point. He can either go home or he can go back. And despite the fact that he knows it's most likely going to be utterly fruitless, he decides to go back to this island and live amongst and minister amongst and love these people. And when he returns, to his surprise, it is totally different. Like the church begins to grow. Count, like conversion after conversion after conversion. It's an t- entirely different Story. He spent the next four years on this island caring for these people until he died at the ripe young age of 49. And see, the question is, why the change? Why the difference? Why the change after he went back? And it's actually, it's actually very simple. It's because he had become one of them. They, they saw the spot. Before before he was someone who he couldn't identify with them. He couldn't empathize with them. He hadn't lived it. He hadn't hadn't experienced it. But now he knew it. He, He could identify with their ailment, their weakness, their isolation, their poverty, their shame, their sorrow. And it changed everything. And you see, that is the Christian gospel. God became one of us. We want to look at God and say, God, you don't, you don't get it, what it's like to be me. And God says, actually, yes, I do. That's why I came into this world. To take on your weakness. To take on your poverty. To take on your sorrow. No other religion says anything like this. No other religion says that God took on human flesh. And that he came... And he didn't just kind of go from one country to the next, but he came from heaven into earth to live amongst us, to minister amongst us, and to take on our sickness. It means that everything that you have ever experienced and you are experiencing and you will ever experience, so did he. And there's no other God who actually understands life uh, in a broken world from the inside out. And you see, at the climax of his life, Jesus became just like this man in John 5. He became just like this man in John 5. You see, physical, physical, he became physically sick. His body was broken and crushed on a cross. He was psychologically sick. He died a nobody's death. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was reserved for the lowest of criminals. He was relationally sick. Even his friends, his closest friends, abandoned him at his hour of greatest need. Like this man in John 5, Jesus had no one. And he became spiritually sick. Because on the cross, Jesus lost the smile of God. When he took the weight of our ultimate sickness upon himself, the cancer of sin and life apart from God, he lost the smile that he always had. Why? You know why? So that you never would. It's what the Apostle Paul says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became what we are so that he might make us what he is. He took our sickness upon himself so that we can be healed. So that those who are physically sick could have the hope 
the certain hope of one day a new body. A body that is free of pain, that is free of disease, that is free of sickness. So that those who are psychologically sick could be made well. Jesus says, I've come to deal with all of your shame and guilt and all the ways that you know you're not the person you're made to be. So that those who are uh, relationally sick could be made well. So that one day we, we look at this life and this world that is to come where, where there is justice and peace and love and mercy and all people are in right relationship. And as Christians, we say, what does it look like for me to actually live into that healing right now? And it came to deal with our spiritual sickness. Jesus actually says, you can have life with God here and now and forever. Do you want to be healed? The invitation for you this morning, whether you have been a Christian for decades or whether you're here this morning just exploring the claims of Christianity, the invitation is actually the same. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He, he is willing and able. And he is, the, he is the only pool who will not leave you with dashed hopes. Let me pray for us. Father, you see us better than we see ourselves. You know our other pools. And yet you are patient. You, you are unrelenting in your pursuit of us. We, we need you not just to expose our other pools for us this morning. But we need you to redirect and reorient our hearts to the living waters of Jesus. We ask that you would do that in his name. Amen. Amen. We, um, we come to this table this morning and uh, this table is like this pool, actually. It's, it's not for people who think they have it all together. It's not for the well. It's not for the healthy. It's for the sick. It's for the broken. It's for the messy. And it's for the needy. And that is good news for you and me this morning. Because if you understand yourself rightly, it means that this table's for you. And Jesus invites you to come by his grace. And to be healed. Uh, what this table actually points us to is the healing work that Jesus has done. Uh, let me read for you from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punish punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. This, this table is for your good. It is for your restoration. 
and it is for your healing, and it is tangible evidence that God will stop at nothing to undo every disease and sickness that wages war against you in this life and in this world. And it points us to the day when we finally will be healed, when sin and death and selfishness and all physical disease and affliction will be no more. So I want to invite you to come this morning. And as we come, let me remind us that on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, in your mercy, you sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal son, to share our human nature to live and to die as one of us, that we might be healed, that we might be reconciled to you. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and he offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. Dying, he destroyed our death and rising, he restored our life. And so we ask now that you would bless this bread and this wine that it might be for us a tangible reminder of the love of Christ. That as we eat and drink together, we would experience your healing presence. Make us whole and fill us with joy that we might go out from this meal to extend your healing love to a hurting and broken world. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Just a moment, we'll come forward down the middle aisle. Uh, you'll receive the elements. There's actually grape juice located on the back uh, station here. Um, as you return to your seats, hold on to the bread and the cup. We'll actually drink and eat together to symbolize our unity in the body of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me say this. I'm so glad that you're here and would not in any way want you to feel pressure to do something that's not actually reflective of where you are in your own spiritual journey with God right now. So you should feel no pressure to get up as people around you come forward. You'll find prayers printed for you in the liturgy, and you can use those um, to consider the things that you've heard this morning. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And actually, let me invite us to stand and recite the Nicene Creed together, and then we'll come forward. Let's read together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. 
He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.